There is no hurt like church hurt. Moral failures, abuse scandals, doctrinal disputes, financial indiscretions, leadership failures, relational strife. These things threaten, and often succeed, at splitting churches right down the middle and leaving countless Christians wounded, confused, and frustrated. To many, the amount of pain that church often delves out makes it seem not worth staying in. Church is messy. It's broken. But at the same time, if we love Jesus, we have to continually ask what Jesus loves. The church is his bride, and he loves the church. In his book, Broken But Beautiful, J.P. Conway writes about the resilient beauty and powerful yet often untapped means towards human flourishing the church gives us. Yes, the church is broken, but there's more. She's beautiful. How do we show grace in the church towards those who hurt us? How do we pursue unity and love in the midst of brokenness and pain? What do we do when we feel like giving up on church altogether? Welcome everybody to the Beards and Bible podcast, a podcast where we talk Bible beards and everything in between. My name is Josh, and I'm joined today by not only my amazing co-host Gabe, but also a, a very special, very special guest that we'll introduce to you in a little bit. But Gabe, how you doing, man? I'm good. Sorry, I'm still sitting here searching for missing Richard Simmons, and I just found it. It's exciting. We were talking about. Um, yeah, podcast recommendations prior to starting uh, this podcast episode. You know, it's funny. I plugged. Uh, we talked about revisionist history a couple podcasts ago, and a guy texted me, and he's like, "Dude, I can't stop listening to revisionist history." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, this is an amazing podcast." So, Missing Richard Simmons is also a really good one, and there's another one in the same vein that my wife and I used to love called uh, Mystery Show. And it was put out by Gimlet Media. So um, really, really cool. You got to look it up. It's it's basically mysteries that can't be solved by Google that this lady takes on. And so mm, That's cool. Yeah. yeah Gabe, what have you, you, you been up to, man? Uh, just wrapping up the school year, um, tying up all those loose ends. I feel like yesterday was that day. I, you know, I kept telling myself, if I can get through this day, I am good. It's downhill from here. And um, mm. so I got through it. Yeah, I survived. And, you know, just uh, issuing final exams and all that good stuff. You know how that goes. Yeah, man. Are you getting ready to, uh, you're going to Uganda pretty soon? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, I think I'm about 15 days out, 17 days out from going on my third trip to Uganda. Awesome. Dude. Yeah. Are we going to try to go mobile while you're, are we going to record a podcast <laughs> using high speed internet while you're over there? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to see how many shillings I have to show out <laughs> yeah, yeah. to make that happen, yeah, yeah. but yeah, that would be that'd be awesome to record from uh, to record from Uganda. Yeah, well, hey, tell our listeners what you do when you go over there. Uh, I primarily go there and um, I I visit different congregations and I teach uh, like ecclesiology and I teach uh, be, uh, teach beginners biblical Hebrew to people who are curious and, and learning it, um, awesome. and just be there as a resource for questions and answers but i also one of the things i do is i tour um institutions of higher learning like vocational centers and stuff for uh people who are eligible i try to find institutions where people can be scholarshiped into and and get them some kind of vocational training such as like nursing school people so so people who come from pretty much a hopeless background they can they can get a scholarship from somebody in the u.s to um, get a degree in nursing or welding or you know, electrical engineering or something of that sort. Wow. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Very, very cool. I'm not super jealous though. I yeah. think I'm, I think I might be going in August, so I don't know. Really? I, okay. I, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm still, my wife and I are kind of praying about it because three young kids, it's always kind of, uh, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. It's just something like, I don't know, addicting to going to Uganda because the people there are just so warm and welcoming and they are like immediate family when, when you're welcome to Uganda. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. I love it. Hey, so last episode you brought up the peach cobbler story and said by mm -hmm. request, somebody asked that we would share the peach cobbler story. So who, I mean, do you want to, this is a, this is a classic 
Josh and Gabe's story from a long time ago. Um, mm. Do you just want to give us a little bit like why is this such a uh, why is this such a good story and <laughs> give us yeah, some background? Yeah. How did how did the peach cobbler incident become known as the peach cobbler incident? Uh, well, I was I was single and in college, and um, and and I too was single and in college. Yeah, dun dun dun. <laughs> and we also lived in the same dorm suite. Yeah. And, yes. uh, I, I, I met, you know, an, an attractive young, young lady and, um, let's, let's call her Amber. Sorry, Amber, okay. if you're listening. <laughs> That's a good generic white girl name for someone who's a little bit crazy, but still pretty. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Amber and I struck up a conversation and, you know, she's asking where I'm from and so on and so forth. And, I, and she somehow got to the, the topic of food. And I said, you know, I, one of the things I really miss, uh, I just really miss a, like good, like fresh, hot peach cobbler, like homemade peach cobbler and stuff. And, and she's like, Oh really? And so, you know, I didn't know that at the time, but she took mental note of that. And, uh, she, she, okay. So I, I go in, um, back, back on the campus or something like that. And I happen to, I think I crossed paths, path with her and she's like, Oh, go up and check your refrigerator. And I'm like, what? Okay. And so I go up to the dorm room and I'm like, what is it? That's so weird. And I look in, my refrigerator it's empty <laughs> and then i look in your refrigerator and it's got a pan of peach cobbler in it yes and i'm like oh, but there was a different reason for why mine had a pan of peach cobbler in okay. it. so in my mind amber made me peach cobbler and it by mistake ended up in your refrigerator mm. and she made that specifically for me because of the comment i made about missing peach cobbler so ah. when I go in your fridge and I see that some of it has already been eaten, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit suspicious of that. And so but, I get a little but, bit. Yeah. But yeah, the plot you, thickens. Shall yeah. I turn the tables and give yeah. the other perspective of Amber? So Amber and I were talking. By talking, I mean we were going on some dates. And uh, the topic of food came up. <laughs> mm. And I said, you know what I really miss? I just miss my grandmother making desserts. She just makes some of the greatest desserts. And she goes, well, you know what? I make a really mean peach cobbler. Oh, man. So and I was like, really? She goes, yeah. She goes, you know, as a matter of fact, I will make one for you. And so not too long after that, she knocks on my dorm room and lo and behold, in a casserole dish, she has a dish and she says, Josh, I made you some peach cobbler. But then as she's walking away, she says something very suspicious. She goes, now, don't forget to share with your roommates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Gabe comes into my room and he goes, hey, do you have my peach cobbler? And I turn around on my computer and I go, your peach cobbler? <laughs> you mean my peach cobbler? <laughs> so, and yeah. At what moment do you, did we both realize we'd been played? Uh, pretty pretty early on. Yeah. Uh, after, after we got our hands off of each other's uh, throat, throats. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So basically what we figured out happened is um, <clears throat> she was just really efficient mm-hmm. in her dating. Yeah. Right. It was like kind of like when I go catfishing, not like on the Internet, when I go actually in a pond catfishing and you have like the, you the know, trot line. Yeah. So you've got multiple, you're, you know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you catch multiple fish using the same bait, that's fine. That's mm-hmm. kind of what she was doing. You know, you can't fault a girl. She was just being efficient. She knew she didn't have, you know enough baking stuff to make multiple peach cobblers mm. but here were two guys that seemed like nice fellas and she thought you know i'll make one peach cobbler and say i made it for both yeah so like in that scenario in that analogy we are the catfish yeah. and we we took the bait of the peach cobbler that was hanging mm-hmm. on the trot line that she put out across this, this stream yes and we took it we took it yeah there's but, yeah but we wised up to her scheme and we did very soon yeah so anyway, peach cobbler. Anytime Gabe and I talk about peach cobbler, we remember that incident from twenty years ago or whenever it was. That was, was good stuff. So one would say that uh, it was a beautiful, a beautiful time, but there were some brokenness. Would you say that, Gabe? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of, <laughs> that's the worst. <laughs> the worst segue I've ever done. Sorry, it has nothing I, to do with our topic. I was trying to figure out how to connect Peach Cobbler to uh, mm. our guest today. Um, yeah, 
didn't do it. I so think well. he, yeah, I just have to. I think you just have to go like. On another note, yeah, um, yeah. we have a guest today, uh, Monty Python, and now for something entirely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so our guest today is Joseph P. Conway. Um, I know him as J.P. Conway. Uh, he ministers for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. He teaches in the College of Bible and Ministry at Lipscomb University and studied at Abilene Christian University, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and Fuller Theological Seminary. And according to his bio, he always has a cup of coffee in one hand. I think I actually saw he has a cup of coffee in one hand on. Yeah, there it is. And uh, his wife, Beth, likes to go on neighborhood walks with him and his three daughters. But I don't know. Is she awake right now? It's 5 a.m. So I'm the only one awake right now. Okay. Okay, good. And in a good beards and Bible tradition. Even the dog so. is asleep still. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, man, thanks so much for joining us today. In- introduce yourself. Tell us just a little bit yeah, about I'm thrilled you. to be here with you guys. So 43 years old. I've lived most of my life in Nashville, Tennessee, but I did spend four years in Texas and six years in Connecticut. We have three daughters. They're wow. seven, nine, and 13. So we've got a teenager in the house as of just a few weeks ago. So I'm definitely in that minivan, carpooling stage, all that good stuff, but it's fun. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I also have a swagging wagon and so does Gabe. So you're in good company. Awesome. Well, man, I've really been enjoying the book. Um, Broken but beautiful is the name of the book. Why church is still worth it. Uh, what what led you to write this book? What was it that kind of inspired you to to, to pen yeah, it? So I teach at Lipscomb University, and a few years ago. Someone in the theology and ministry department had come to me and said, hey, we we do an annual retreat for all the ministry majors, all the people studying to go out and work with churches. And could you come speak at our retreat? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. What's what's the theme? And they said, uh, well, here's here's the issue. We are having trouble getting our ministry students to go out and actually work with churches. What often happens is Hmm. if they can't get a job at the the quote-unquote cool church in town, then they kind of struggle to get a job because they don't want to get a job with the quote-unquote uncool church. And oftentimes what happens is they go out and get their first job somewhere, and after a couple years, it just doesn't work out. And oftentimes they go into the nonprofit sector, which is great. The nonprofit sector is great. But... There are churches out there that need ministers, and how can we teach our ministry majors to love the church? And they, they then they said, and we were trying to think of somebody that had spent most of their ministry career at churches that weren't very cool, weren't very cutting edge, and and we thought of you, <laughs> <laughs> which which was an interesting thing. That was about the time I turned forty, and I thought, you know, that's true. And why is that true? I've spent most of my life at. And I say the cool and uncool tongue-in-cheek because I've spent most of my life with wonderful people at wonderful churches, but I've ne- it's never been the cool kid in town type of church. It's been kind of the normal churches you drive by with the little marquees out front. And um, But I have found some of the most wonderful people and some of the most wonderful memories in my life in those places. And, uh, and so I did a lot of soul searching. It's probably a little midlife crisis thrown in there, but I'm like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> and as a minister, why do I love church so much? Cause I, I have always loved church always. Hmm. That's awesome. That's really, really cool, man. Uh, I think that's super interesting to say that ministry majors, uh, for whatever reason felt, would you, would you say I'm going to use a term, um, does ministry seem unsexy to a young uh, ministry student that's probably thinking about the rest of their life unless your career? It seems very like not glamorous to step into a run of the mill, uh, um, uncool to use your yeah. term, <clears throat> smaller church. There, de- there are definitely categories, and I understand where those categories come from. And we've probably given those categories to younger people, but they they definitely see it as attractive places to do ministry and unattractive places to do mm-hmm. ministry. And, uh, you know, it's, it's challenging and I get it to convince a 22, 23 year old to go to something that seems challenging. It seems, um, you know, to them, maybe it seems overly traditional or too cookie cutter or something like that. So 
I recognize the challenge. That's why I think it starts with a deep love of what's going on there and for what you can bring to those people instead of what those people can bring to you. Absolutely. Well, in your book, you you share a little bit of your personal story. Um, Growing up, you shared about how you experienced kind of a personal tragedy and how your church family was there for you in the midst of that. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah, so as I, as I was preparing to speak at that retreat, so I think this would have been summer of 2019, I, I just did a lot of soul searching on, you know, how has God worked in my life? Why has my life turned out the way it has? Why why are there things I'm really into, things I'm not really into, and why is church one of those? And I think for a lot of us, meditations like that go back to family of origin. And so I spent a lot of time that summer thinking about my childhood. And the tragedy of my childhood. So when I was eight years old, my family had gone down to Alabama to visit my paternal grandfather. And when we were down there, we were in a car accident. Our car was sideswiped and my mother was killed mm. instantly. Um, and it was, it was in that experience that, and I couldn't have phrased this at the time as an eight year old, but I was trying to figure out who was going to take care of me and what was community going to look like? And there was this very raw and vulnerable moment um, in the emergency room where when my grandparents got down there from Tennessee and they brought in the hospital chaplain and they finally told me what I had sensed for several hours and what I think my older brother already knew. And that is that my mother had indeed been killed in, in that accident. And I remember this raw, vulnerable cry that came out of me. I said, who is going to be my mother? Hmm. And I remember my, my grandmother, this would have been my, my maternal grandmother, um, hugging on me and telling me she was, she was there for me. And as, as I think about the answer to that question, I had a great family. Like My dad's unbelievable. I still talk to him multiple times a week. My grandparents were always there for me a few years later. My dad married my stepmother, who continues to be a wonderful influence in my life. But by and large, um, that question, who will be my mother, was not answered by one person, but was answered by a community of people, and primarily the church community, because this church of probably 300 people that people drove by every day, kind of this average brick building, was home to me. And every time our car pulled into that parking lot and I'd pop the door open of our Toyota Camry and run into those doors as a child, everyone would turn and look. And I went by Joe Paul when I was, when I was a kid, everybody would turn (laughs) and look and say, Joe Paul's here. And they would all smile and they would give me a hug. And, um, you know, I was a youth minister for 10 years. And one of the big things I noticed was how many teenagers just did not have people that delighted in Mm. them that when they walked into a room, people's faces didn't light up. And I saw how that affected them. And I, I mean, I boast when I say this, I feel very blessed and very lucky, but I I tell people, you want to know what it's like to grow up where over a hundred people just think you're the greatest. (laughs) And they, they smile every time you walk into a room and that, that was my childhood. My wife will tease me. She said, maybe it was a little too much because you're used to people. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's awesome, man. But that was my childhood in church. And just that formed me in deep ways. It's a place of, of nurture and a place of community and a place of safety. Very cool. Very cool. And that's one of the things I love about the book is you you write about so many relatable. If somebody's grown up in church and had a good church experience, um, you, you write about things like ice cream socials, man, that chapter about the ice cream social. I was just, I was tearing up because I was like, Oh, we used to have an ice cream social at my church. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, man, it's, it's a, it's an amazing and beautiful book just reading about stuff like that. But, um, you also acknowledge kind of the brokenness that people experience in church as well. And in, in chapter true, you, you wrote this quote, you said the body of Christ is broken. There's no escaping it. The church must repent. So, Church has this unique, amazing beauty about it uh, because it offers community and all and family and all those things. But but there is a level of brokenness that we see in church. Talk about that for a little bit. Where where do we see that? I think part of this was 
kind of a coming of age experience for me, realizing the group of people that I had fallen in love with was in many ways, hopelessly flawed this side of heaven. Um, when I graduated from college in Texas, my first ministry assignment was in Connecticut. So this was around the year 2000. Uh, so I cut my teeth in ministry in New England in the early 2000s. Mm. This was right around the time um, the Boston Globe broke the the Catholic priest abuse scandal. Mm. And that became kind of the dominant, and it's, it's a very Catholic area up there, but it became the kind of the dominant lens by which people saw church and in which people saw religion. And, you know, as a Protestant from the South, it was very easy for me to think, oh, that's something going on in that church that really doesn't affect me. But I, I remember hanging out with a teenager one day and he said to me, my dad told me if you ever try anything on me to tell him immediately. Wow. And then I, then I realized what was going on that like there was default suspicion towards me. But then I realized it was somewhat justified by the father. Sure. Like, it was actually a good fatherly thing to say, you know, Hey, if an adult does something to you, like you should let an adult know. But I, I just had this overwhelming sense of sadness that that had happened. And now there was a cloud of suspicion and it wasn't a, it wasn't a Catholic problem. It was an all of us problem. Right. And the church that I was at there, um, you know, we had our own story of sexual impropriety before I had arrived at this church. And I realized the dominant narrative in churches were Christians like to talk about sexuality and Christians are concerned with the way that sexuality is going in our world, the currents. And yet simultaneously, churches have oftentimes have deep scandals of abuse of women and children in the sexual realm. Mm. And, and I began to grieve that. Um, and then it's even been in, in recent years, probably the last year or so, where I've realized because of the deep brokenness, and, and I would use the word hypocrisy. Sure. Because of the, the widespread hypocrisy of the American church, that will be the dominant um, mood and the dominant um, kind of just the dominant posture that I'm faced with when it comes to church the rest of my life. Yeah. Man, we did an episode a couple of uh, episodes back about the Ravi Zacharias scandal and about just um, when leaders fail us. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, and, and Gabe, maybe you can speak to this as well. I, I think I experienced some of that cynicism and skepticism with people in, in you know, church in general. Gabe, do you see that? Do you experience that? Just kind of that level of, of cynicism and distrust sometimes? Yeah, I, I have. And you have to, you know realize that when people come into your doors, um, you, you don't know where they're coming from and you don't know what they've walked through. You know, being a, being a school teacher, it's so easy uh, because you know who's in your classroom day in and day out. You know where they're at in their learning. You know their learning style. You know their grade average. You know all these things about them. And you have them for 180 days. They leave. You get a new set. But in a church setting, a congregational setting, it is it, any given weekend someone could walk into your door and you have no idea yeah. what they what kind of baggage they're bringing with them what kind of pain or mistrust they have with them so yeah it could be um my last pastor uh sexually abused one of my children um or my last pastor had an, a, a sexual affair and cheated on his wife or my last pastor i think he made uh too much money um so i i need you to to earn my trust and that's just the reality of it like you know he said, like, we're just living in a, in a fallen world. And that is, um, that is a reality we are stuck with. And and that's what we have. That's what we're called to work through yeah. is, is to, to rebuild that trust with people and hopefully do a good job with it. Hopefully good, be good stewards of it. So the, yeah. So brokenness in terms of, um, I mean, big things like scandals, mm -hmm. right. And leadership tragedies and stuff like that. But I mean, what are some other areas that we see that? I mean, it, obviously, you know, sexual abuse scandals, financial indiscretions, leadership failures. What, what else? I mean, well, there, you, sometimes you can see people that are like, uh, you know, my, my pastor abandoned the in-person flock for an online presence or something like that, or you right. know, building, building his, <laughs> or his building career. His, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of, you know, uh, <laughs> places and, and, and sources of pain in people's life and mistrust. Sometimes it's legitimate and sometimes it's, it's simply just a cop out. 
Um, mm. You know, maybe maybe they didn't want to hear a hard truth, and so they look for any and every little uh, flaw in, in a fallen pastor's life to uh, to use as justification to leave that church. Um, I've seen that as well. Yeah, and that's that's the hard part of about it is like there's real brokenness, there's real pain, there's real. I, I agree so much with what you wrote, JP, about we need to repent, and that has to start with us first, right? Acknowledging our failures and our sin in so many areas as the church. Um, <clears throat> do you feel like though there are some people who wear the hurt by church as a badge of honor as a way to kind of keep them from engaging? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I guess what I would say is, is for years when people, so you guys may experience this, like when I meet new people and they ask me what I do, it doesn't take very long to get to church. And then therefore I hear a lot about their thoughts on church and for years, I had this instinctive uh, desire to defend the church and and say, oh, but, you know, people aren't perfect and there's really a lot of good in the church. And mm-hmm. and I finally got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. That was just your experience. And to just grieve with them. Um, but yes, definitely. Some people use, hey, I. I've been hurt as as an excuse, you know, and it's hard to know who's who's truly been hurt yeah. and and who is using it as, as as an excuse. Sure. But sure. I tell you, life life is a series of pendulum swings, and I remember uh, in my childhood talking to my grandfather and and whom I love, but he was almost a church before Jesus guy, okay. Mm-hmm. And then I think there was a pendulum swing when it was like, oh, we're talking about church so much. We need to talk. And, and he was a man of the 1950s, and that was a big time for institutions, right? Sure. But there was a pendulum swing to say, we need to talk more about, about Jesus. And and I remember going to a series of conferences. This would have been when I was early on in ministry, so the early 2000s. And it was almost a competition among speakers to see who could make fun of the church the most. Hmm. And it was almost like, it was like, um, it was virtue signaling to say, hey, I really get it. The church is the worst right, type right, of right, thing. Right, 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 right. And there was a perversion of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees to say Jesus was Jesus had a default posture of negativity towards religious people. Therefore, we should always have a default negative posture towards religious people. And it doesn't take long to be in those circles to say Jesus would like me more if I wasn't religious and, and I, people use the word religious in a variety of ways, but basically Jesus would like me more if I didn't go to church and I was sure, an, sure. an edgier churchless Christian. And um, I think that is a widespread perspective. And that's, that, that seems to be pretty in vogue in some circles. Um, you talked about the early two thousands. I think about um, when Donald Miller was coming out and Rob Bell was coming out and those guys, it almost seemed like that was the, Again, <laughs> that was the sexy form of kind of youthful Christianity. We were in Bible college at that time, and it was kind of like, you know, everybody was saying, do, do you really have to, you know, yeah. be a part of a church to really follow Jesus? And church is really so messed up and broken. I mean, what does it really look like to be a Christian anyway? And and it, I think it's, um, you, you speak about an overall distrust and dissatisfaction towards institutions and organizations. <laughs> so what... What does that look like in terms of how that plays out in our relationship with church? Well, it was a few years ago, um, and I started to see this more when I was just noticing political conversations, and I realized someone might say, burn it all down, or someone might say, drain the swamp. And they were on opposite political sides, but they were really, they really had the same thing in mind. And it was a tear it all down, it's all failed me. So education system has failed us. Healthcare system has failed us. Government has has failed us. The big banks have failed us. And business has failed us. And the media has definitely failed us. And then you get to the end and it's like, yes, religion church has failed us as well. And so there's this widespread suspicion of, of, of institutions. And therefore what happens is people's social muscles have so atrophied that they don't know how to be good. And I need to choose my words wisely. We struggle to be good institutional citizens <laughs> because yeah. our muscles have so atrophied about what that means. And so to be, <laughs> I said this to my girls the other night, I was trying to get them to help unload the dishwasher. And I, and I said, remember now there's no I in team. 
And mm. and my nine year old thought I had come up with that expression on the fly. And she, <laughs> thought was, she, thought, she thought she's at that age where she thinks dad is hilarious. You know, the 13 year old does not. But um, I'm like, no, I did not come up with that phrase. But we all know that to be a good community member, it can't be all about you. You have to have a certain level of unselfishness. But you get a group of people that have been hurt. They develop a default posture of suspicion towards institutions, communal groups. And therefore you get a bunch of group, you get a bunch of people that don't want to unload the dishwasher. (laughs) Wow. Good way to put it. And so we have a deep thirst for community. We're incredibly lonely as I talk about in the book and we have a deep thirst for community. And yet our, our social muscles to discover that. And, and I believe the Holy spirit works in that. I don't believe that we get it completely on our own, but our social muscles to discover that are so weak right now because of what we've been through. Mm. Yeah, and and you uh, you talked a little bit in the book about how there's just this societal level loss of community, that there's like this loneliness, there's this loss of community, and at the same time, there's this simultaneous distrust of all institutions and organizations. And so it's it's almost like the snake eating its tail, right? I mean, we're like, I, I distrust everything that looks like an institution, but at the same time, I want people because I'm lonely. But I don't want to go to where there's a group of people because that's corporate in some sense. And so it's just kind of like we're we're our own worst enemy when it comes to these sorts of things. And we trip over our own feet when it comes to these sorts of things. Um, well, yeah, not, not only that, Josh, but, you know, I think the, the COVID thing has further complicated that where, you know, we're taking church online and we're saying, you know, here, we're going to we're going to participate in these online worship services. And now that things are kind of opening back up and, you know, we're like, OK, everybody who was online and you were doing that now, now come, come to this in person and come get your feelings hurt and come, you know, <laughs> see the flaws in human beings and experience right. broken people and develop risky relationships with other and, human and, beings. And let other people see your brokenness as well. Let's, let's mm-hmm. do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard to pull people out of that. And because being online, it's safe being online, you know, there isn't this expectation that, um, I need to to put it out there. I, I need to put it on the line and and build these relationships and these friendships and serve a community. Um, it's very safe. It's yeah. and it's you 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 have that consumerist mindset where you're receiving, you're you're taking, um, you're being encouraged, but you're not doing the other side of the coin, which is encouraging others, healing others, serving others. So that's that that further complicates the issue too. Yeah, I love this quote, JP, you wrote, you said, by definition, consumerism creates dissatisfaction amidst a veiled promise of satisfaction. It cultivates pickiness, even selfishness, in ways that make contentment challenging and difficult. Mm. So that's like a super loaded quote <laughs> that's pregnant with all sorts of implications. Unpack that for a little bit. Like, how does this consumerist culture negatively impact our practice of church? I think we learn to desire things that are unsatisfying. So I, I would compare it to when I'm watching a football game and I see an advertisement for Doritos and Mountain <laughs> Dew and I begin to crave those things. But yet, um, you know, I'm old enough now to remember the times that I ate a whole bag of chips and a six pack of Mountain Dew while I was watching the game and I didn't feel very good afterwards. And, and, Religious consumerism and social consumerism does the same thing. We learn to desire things that don't truly satisfy us, and we learn um, we learn to have an expectation that all of our all of our tastes should be curated, and we can design everything that happens around us. So, I remember that just noticing church conversations. I've always been into church, right, since mm-hmm. the time I was a little kid, and so people got a lot pickier about the song selection in church when everyone had their own iPod. (laughs) Because (laughs) you guys remember this. I remember as a kid, you would listen to the whole album. You wouldn't just pick out your favorite songs and only listen to your favorite songs. Like You would put the cassette tape in, and you would listen to the whole album. And when everyone had their own iPod, and everybody was doing their own playlist at home, then they came to church and they're like, wait, we don't get to choose the songs, yeah, but yeah. I don't like that song. I didn't like that one song. And, and so consumerism teaches us to be incredibly picky. Hmm. 
what what are your what's your advice when you know you let's say you get a new family in in your church and they're super excited they're um thrilled to be there they're you know they have kids they you know they just everything just meshes perfectly with your with your church and and the other families there you know they they've come for a few weeks and they just have this you know aura about them like we finally are home you know what do you advise them then like they seem to be in this euphoric state but you know the dysfunction train is going to run them over in a map. They're going to start to see, well, they're going to, you know, like we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And eventually you're going to hit dysfunction somehow, some shape or form. There's going to be tension. There's going to be conflict. How do you expose them to the idea that you, it may look perfect because everybody's putting on their best face. They're, they're welcoming you. They're, they're showing you hospitality, you know, good Southern hospitality. But just be warned, we're not perfect. What do you what do you advise in that situation? One of the elders at my church, he likes to tell people, we're gonna let you down. Mm. And it's a frequent mantra of his. And there was a time it really frustrated me because I was like, come on, man, quit being so <laughs> negative. But like, because he likes to say it when everything's going great. Mm. Mm. And, you know, you're having this great conversation or you're with people out on the deck or after worship and it's just been a great Sunday. And I'll say, man, today was really great. But remember, we're going to let you down. <laughs> it's kind of a buzzkill, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a buzzkill. But it's kind of a assessment of expectations. And also, I've, I've been at this church 10 years and I, I noticed when I first got to this church, there would be times where a new family would come and, and they, they're a very warm group of people a very warm group of people, but they would tell people, Hey, we, we'd love for you to join our church, but it's, it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. And they, they always had this, it's, it's not for everybody. And it was kind of this sense of, we're not going to try to twist your arm. We'd love you to be a part of our church, but we're not going to try to twist your arm. And, and so I think I've seen so many people, in their church practice, they run around from honeymoon stage to honeymoon stage, almost like a high school infatuation in dating. Mm-hmm. And and you do that five or six years, and you go to five or six different churches, and you're just worn out. You're yeah. just worn out. But to to plant at one place and say they're gonna they're gonna disappoint me, but community is found in making a long term investment. Yeah. I, it, it's so interesting to me sometimes when I'll meet people at like our, we call it our next steps class. Um, they'll give me this story about how our church is the greatest thing in the whole world and their last church. Oh, it's nothing like my last church, my last church, blah, 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 blah. But this church, oh, <laughs> in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking, oh man, like, yeah. like Gabe said, they're just setting themselves up for disappointment because there's going to come a point in time when, you know, something disappoints them. And, I think that's well said, JP, that there's this honeymoon phase that anyone can uh, be in. And and I think the sad part is um, there are these expectations of a of perfect church that don't even exist, right? I mean, it's like a unicorn, right? Finding that perfect church that has and, – and so much of it's informed by consumerism, right? I You know, I want good preaching. I want good music. I want good ministries for my kids. I want also a good youth group, but I want it to be able to do, you know – all of these things. And it's just kind of like, well, man, this side of eternity, I don't know. (laughs) You might find some of that, but like, is it really all about you getting everything you want in one package? Or is it you about finding a community of people that you can plug in with and go deep with and, and serve and have a family with? I remember, so I remember in seminary, one of my professors saying kind of slightly sarcastic, but he said, research has shown that there's three essential ingredients to plant start, initiate what will ultimately become a mega church. And he said, you need music so good that people would be willing to pay for it. You need a charismatic, infectious speaker, and you need clean women's restrooms. (laughs) And I remember thinking, I like all of those things. Like I like a clean bathroom as much as the next person. And I like good speakers and I listen to worship music all the time. So like those aren't bad things and I hope we have those things, but those aren't the things that provide community. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you you write about this uh, loneliness epidemic. I just thought this was crazy. Uh, UK Prime Minister Theresa May called loneliness a few years ago a public health crisis. So you've got this weird mix of consumerism uh, mentality. You've got distrust of organizations and institutions. And all the while, even though there's a part of us as human beings that we want the Mountain Dew and the Doritos, we want the the concert and the the TED talk, right? We're deeply, 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 deeply lonely. Yeah. And this is, this is a dark part of the conversation because it's incredibly sad, but all the statistics are going the wrong direction. Uh, over the last 20 years, the numbers on loneliness in America have doubled. 20% of Americans said they were lonely. Now it's 40%. It's about half mm-hmm. of Americans when asked, do you have someone in your life that truly knows you? Only about half of Americans say that they do. And so our modern life has left us very, um, we're very siloed. We're very atomized. And in technology, I don't want to be one of these people that just criticizes technology. There, there are certainly some benefits of technology. We're, we're connecting today via technology. People are listening to this yeah. via technology. But, but there is an extent where... Um, technology separates us, isolates us, and and makes community even more challenging to connect. But loneliness is not good for us. Loneliness defined as as a sense of a sense of sadness about your level of disconnection. So it's not the same thing as being alone. You know, there are plenty of times we need to be alone. We like to be alone. But loneliness is when you have a level of despair about your sense of disconnection. And, and health researchers say it's just as bad for us as smoking. It'll take, wow. it'll take seven years off your lifespan. Wow. Man. And I mean, like reasons for that, right? I mean, is it, is it, is the, the reasons for that? Is it just like a multiplicity of reasons? Like the fact that we're busier now than ever before, that there's an artificial form of connection. Like what, what would you say is the biggest culprit of the kind of loneliness that we're experiencing in modern life? <clears throat> so many of the time-tested ways of providing community, we're just in a season of those things falling apart. But we're just now in the season of trying to figure out how to rebuild those things. And so, you know, if we think about our grandparents and our great-grandparents, we travel a lot more than they did. We live probably further away from family of origin than they did. Um, And we we just don't have the same level. Let me put it this way. You look at an immigrant community and notice how they do life together and how they lean on each other to survive and how different that is from communal groups that have, have been in a country for several generations. Um, they don't struggle with loneliness the same way that folks that, that have been here for a while struggle with by and large. Sure. So it almost seems like we have, as Americans, become exceptionally uh, individualistic. And we've kind of built our own lifestyles around our own preferences and tailor-made, I like this, and this is part of my lifestyle and and all that kind of stuff. And that's led to kind of not only a hyper-individualization, but exceptional loneliness. Yeah, when sociologists, um, when they do a spectrum of communal versus individualistic, societies you know it you have you know certain latin and asian contexts that are that are very communal traditionally and then it kind of gets to the middle and you have europe and then you keep going and you have like canada and australia and then you go for a long way to the far end of the graph and you get the united states and we we're we live in a culture (laughs) where it's hey you do you you find your true self and we're we're as obsessed as any civilization has ever been with individual identity. We talk about individual identity constantly. Yeah. And so we get the fruit of that. We're really good at being individuals. Sure. We are really, really bad at being community groups. Yeah. I just think of our last episode, we talked about uh, doomsday prepping and survivalism and, you know, people that go off the grid and it's just them and they're, you know, just them and all their munitions in their bunker. I mean, that's, that is us, right? Um, 
And, and you, you talk about in chapter six of the book, a, a group of Americans that sociologists are calling duns. So they're just done. They, they say, I'm a Christian, but I'm done with church. So how did they end up there? I mean, probably a lot of the things we've been talking about, but how does that typically happen where someone just says, still believe in God, still follower of Jesus, but I just want nothing to do with church? How, how does that happen typically? And they estimate it's about 10% of Americans now self-identify as Christian. But if you ask them, what is your church? They don't even claim to say, oh, well, I went to that church on Easter two years ago. They just kind of say, no, I don't have a church. But but I identify as a Christian, and I think what happens is it's the it's the building block of a lot of hurt and a lot of wounds. And as you know, you mentioned COVID and the pandemic a second ago. You know, I was having lunch with a friend the other day, and he said, "I don't know that I'm going back to church after the pandemic mm-hmm. because I mean, I was I still prayed and read my Bible." during the pandemic. I just don't know that I need it. I don't know that it makes a difference in my life. And so you get you get a group of people that have been wounded. And then you get a group of people questioning, does it does it even make a difference? And so I can listen to the meditation app on my iPhone. Why do I need to go to worship? And so it's it's all of these things that we've talked about thus far in the conversation. They just build and build and they fester. And then it's ultimately like, you know what? I can do this Jesus thing without the church. Wow. Yeah, I would say that my generation is probably more guilty of that than anything else. Um, Gabe, I'm thinking about folks you and I went to school with. I mean, there's quite a number of them that would say they're still people of faith, but they just don't go to church. They've chosen not to engage. Yeah. 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 That's the sad reality of it. Yeah. As they, they approach it, that consumerist mindset in the United States of America, especially is just so toxic and dangerous um, because it's, it's in direct opposition um, to biblical community um, that says you, you stick through, uh, you know, through thick and thin, um, through offenses, through pain, through hurt. Um, you work through that. You stay there. Um, and, and it doesn't help too that, you know, there's a, there's a church, especially in the, in the deep South, there's, there's a church literally, almost literally on every corner that you could pick and choose from. So if you don't like this church or you get hurt here, or you just, you feel like not working through and getting conflict resolution, well, there's a different brand you can choose on, on the shelf, so to speak. And you can just go down the road and, and start, start new, you know, and start with a clean slate. Yeah. Um, yeah that's, so I, I almost wonder sometimes it's like, the 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 oversaturation of of this like cultural American Christianity and, and especially in the Deep South um, has its its cons as well in a sense that um, it's not true like uh, like nitty gritty you know gospel of hey we need each other we depend on each other for this hey and JP you talked about in the book when you were <laughs> I thought this was so fascinating uh, the church in New England you were a part of. Uh, to share that story where the guy's basically like, hey, we don't have that luxury. We got to work it out because <laughs> there's not too many churches around. Or- <laughs> well, I was so yeah. used to living in the South. Whatever the trendy topic was, everybody would like talk about it. Like whatever the big thing was, you know, after church, you'd sit around and talk about the big thing that had happened at the big church. And I was asking him one day, I was like, what do you think about this? Everybody's talking about it. And he looked at me and goes, we don't have time for that up here. and i thought i thought that was so great because it definitely um i mean the church i was at definitely had a personality but there was a greater um theological breadth to that church we had people that i mean always always hedge using these words because these words can mean so many different things but in this context what was considered conservative and progressive for that context um there was a pretty pretty wide spread there because there just weren't the type of options you might find in the quote-unquote Bible Belt. But it forced people to work together. And, you know, back to the curated playlist, they didn't show up on Sunday ready to be affirmed. They didn't show up on Sunday ready to get <laughs> everything the way they wanted. Um, you know, and, and I've often tried to say, because I've heard other mentors say this, Church, church is the place, church is the group of people, church is the setting where no one person gets their way all the time. 
And and if we're not prepared for that, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to frequently not get our way. But guess what? Over time, it's going to make us stronger. Over time, it's going to make us more like Jesus. And that's really the goal. I mean, that's the goal of church is formation, is formation, yeah. discipleship. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about the beautiful part of church because we spend a lot of time talking about the brokenness part of it. Let's talk about the beautiful part of it. You you talk about uh, Venice and Epcot. <laughs> so as a as a lifelong Disney World fan, I found that chapter fascinating. How how is the church like Epcot? Yeah. So I had this, you know, probably like a lot of kids that you're very lucky and blessed as a kid get to go to Disney World once and you just don't have a box to put it in. You know. So I went when I was probably five or six and. The rest of my life, it was just kind of this this magical place that nothing else compared to that. And I think it was probably the year 2006, and I went to I went to Europe for the first time. My wife was born in Italy; her parents were missionaries there. And I went over with my in laws and my wife. And one day they were going to take me to Venice, and they were like all excited to show me Venice. And so we're going around, and I just I was a little jet lagged, and I just Venice is beautiful. And I had no box to put it in. And they kept saying, what do you think about it? What do you think about it? What do you think? And I finally said, it's, it's amazing. It's just like Epcot. And (laughs) as soon as that came out of my mouth, they all stopped because we were walking, they all stopped and just stared at me. And I was like, I'm never going to ever live this down. And I remember my father-in-law said, no, this is not like Epcot. Epcot is like this. <laughs> but, you know, in the book, what I talk about, and, and I've used this before, is to make the connection, you know, Jesus, the kingdom of God, I mean, that's Venice. And church is always going to be Epcot. You know, th- this side of heaven, it's it's an imitation. And it's not a fake it till you make it type of thing. It's It's not an insincere imitation, but it's a human imitation. Um, it's just like when you're trying to do an impersonation or you're trying to mimic a voice or something, it's like, it's a human imitation and it's going to be really great. Just like Epcot's really great. Um, but, but there are going to be days when it is just not like the real thing. Mm. Yeah. I I thought that was a really helpful metaphor in, in terms of just helping us understand that. But at the same time, you talk about unique things the church gives that no other place in all the world can provide. What, what are those things? Well, you know, we talked about how this, these pendulum swings of when we talked about Jesus more than talking about the church. And what I realized talking to some of my college students is they've grown up in that. And so they have never heard people just honestly talk about the greatness of church. And so what I stand up in front of my students and say, the church is the greatest social movement the world has ever known. They've never heard that before where I, I mm. grew up. I remember hearing that type of thing from, from my, my grandparents. Okay. And if you think about it, what is the uniqueness of church? What does the church provide? And, and I have a chapter for each one of these things, but the church provides open weekly gatherings. So in a culture that is obsessed with inclusiveness, what is more inclusive than a group of people that has an open chair and an open appointment every single week? Come join us. No appointment, no appointment yep. necessary. And, unless it's like COVID and you have capacity restrictions, right? But, but it's like <laughs> no appointment necessary. And then um, there's an intergenerational feel to churches. It's one of the last vestiges of society where young and old connect in one social group and we're not siloed into peer groups. Um, there's a transnational identity that happens in churches where we come together and so much of our political conversations is, is national interests pitted against each other. But the church is a global community. You guys started off talking about a trip to Uganda. And, and I think why one reason why connecting with Christians in other parts of the world is so encouraging is we remind ourselves we're a part of something that's really, really big. And, and especially, I think, in our country in these times, we just get so overwhelmed with American politics for a bunch of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And to be reminded, oh, we're part of a global community that has existed long before the United States came into being and will continue to exist long after the United States is no more, at least not in its present form. 
that's a powerful thing. And then lastly, churches offer ethical accountability. And in a culture that is obsessed with working out our physical bodies or going to the latest master class to learn the new thing, where else in society do you train and exercise your moral compass, your ability to be an ethical mm-hmm. creature? And that's what church is designed to do, to make us better people. Wow. Well, yeah, and it is so interesting. Yeah, and it is so interesting how there almost is a culture uh, that we've created that uh, we've that seems to never really talk about those things. We seem to highlight all of the ways that the church is messed up, but we never seem to talk about the unique uh, beauty that the church provides. Um, so we're living out this kingdom reality. We're we're you know creating Epcots of the <laughs> the actual kingdom, right? In in a in a world that is tattered and torn by the curse of sin. Um, you talk about how we're exiles. We're, this world is not our home, but yet we're here in it. And you, you talk a little bit about living within that tension of kind of representing this kingdom, but we're still living in the midst of brokenness in the church. Um, how, do we, how do we live that out? How do we live that tension out honestly, but hopefully while all this is, is happening around us? I remember the first time that a mentor pointed out to me that the resurrected body of Jesus still had wounds, still had scars. And and I think mm. theologically, we remind ourselves that we're people of both the crucifixion and the resurrected. And it's always going to be a mixed bag. And so I think we prepare ourselves ahead of time that there's going to be a mixed bag. And every day in church is going to be two steps forward, one steps backward. And so we have a posture of honesty and vulnerability and not taking ourselves too seriously. And we anticipate the wound. So I mentioned the elder that says, Hey, we're going to disappoint you. We mentioned the stories of abuse and financial scandal. So at our church, we publish the budget. We tell people exactly how we spend our money. We try to go over our abuse policy and our child safety policy at least once a year. Like we try to be out front on these things, but then we're not afraid to be audacious. We're not afraid to say the church is the greatest social movement the world has ever known. And if you want to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world, you do that primarily as church, you know? You just primarily, yeah. could you tell me a story of someone being filled with the Spirit and working for the kingdom outside of church? Absolutely. I'm aware of a lot of those stories. But primarily, it happens as, as a vehicle of church. And so just unashamedly sticking up for the church, you know, the reactions to the book have been, have been twofold. On one hand, I've gotten the, man, I'm so glad you admitted that it was broken. But the other, the other thing I keep hearing is, I'm so glad you admitted that it's still beautiful. Because I think so many Christians, <laughs> yeah. like we take it on the chin every day. <laughs> and right. to be clear, I'm not saying we're persecuted in America. Like I'm, I'm not going down that train of thought. But church-going people are blamed for many things. Some of them we sure. deserve, but a lot of it we don't deserve. Okay, And we're blamed for many things. And, and to just stand up and say, church is a great thing, and we're not afraid to say it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I love what you talk about. Like it almost felt like, and I don't know if you would, uh, uh, you know, this is me kind of paraphrasing you, but it's almost like our tolerance for pain within the church community is one of the greatest assets we can have in terms of us being spiritually formed and us being spiritually grown. Because you talk about how it's like training with, for a marathon, right? I mean, if you really want to grow, you got to be willing to put up with some pain, right? In the same way, like there's always relational pain if you get in a group of people. Um, would you agree with that? Like ta- your tolerance for yeah. pain, your pain tolerance, that's... We, um, specifically when it comes to maturity, we have little tolerance for the things that bring us maturity. So I think about my specific church, these two older couples that everybody just thinks the world of, they they look so much like Christ. And I've spent a lot of time thinking, how did they get to this point where they look so much like Christ? And I think one of the main things in their life where they committed to a group of people. And our church at one point got down to about 30 or 40 people. This was years ago. But they didn't leave. 
And what they did was hmm. they took out the trash and they balanced budgets and they created ministries to try to engage the community and they just kept showing up. And over time, going through those rhythms, you'll get stronger. You know, one of my brothers likes to work out a lot and we were talking. It was one January. We'd gotten together for somebody's birthday and he said, I hate going to the gym in January. All these people with their New Year's resolutions. I just long for February where they all give up and quit. And I don't I don't have to wait in line <laughs> for the machines. And I think that's what happens with, with church. Like we, we have good intentions, but when it gets hard, we often disengage to where we kind of participate, but in a safe way that doesn't challenge us, or we disengage altogether. But what church does is it matures us. I mean, I think of an example within the last couple of years when someone was really upset with me and they were partially right and partially wrong. Um, and I wanted to run from that experience, but instead I sat down with them face to face and I said, I apologize for this, but on this thing, I'm not going to apologize because I don't think I was wrong for that. And it was a messy, hard conversation. There were tears, but I went home a more mature person and, and they did too, mm-hmm. because we went we didn't just cut and run, but we went through the process of dealing with our stuff and, and the Holy Spirit was working in that. Um, but it, it'll yeah. make you more like Jesus, but it'll hurt. Yeah. I love that phrase. It'll make you more like Jesus, but it'll hurt. <laughs> we don't like hearing that sometimes in our, in our culture, right? We would love to have the more like Jesus pill or the more like Jesus magic bullet. Um, Hey, like, uh, as, as we kind of wrap things up, like what, what would you say to somebody who just feels like giving up on church altogether? They're like, man, I'm kind of, I'm kind of teetering on the brink of being done and being considered one of the duns, right? What, what would you say to somebody who's, who's there? Yeah, I would say to just really think about the good, bad, and the ugly, and be honest about it. You know, I, I'm a pro-con list guy, and I challenge people, write a pro-con list, and you're going to have plenty of, plenty of cons. But be honest about the pros of church and the things you get from church that you can't get anywhere else. And consider the fact that maybe maybe we've done church selection wrong, and maybe we've chosen our churches based on the, the public speaking, the music, and what would happen if we chose a church based on a group of people that I want to do life with. And what if we reinvest and said, I'm going to give this a year where I really invest in this group of people. And I'm going to choose a group that I think our rhythms of life match well. So most likely that's not going to be a church that you have to drive 30 minutes to get to. It's probably not going to be a church where your kids are in a completely different school system than all their kids. It's probably going to be, I, I remember an interview with Eugene Peterson in the year or so before he, he passed away, and they asked him, what is your recommendation for where to go to church? And he said, find the closest church to your house and the smallest church to your house. Yeah, I don't know that people <laughs> always have to do that, but well, there's something behind that. It says, make, com- sure. make your search for community coincide with your life rhythms, and it's not about Finding a good church fit is less about the church and more about your posture. It's more about you than the church. Now, with that said, there are toxic situations you need to get out of. I talk to people all the time that their church refuses to ever admit they do anything wrong. They're not transparent. They're not vulnerable. They take themselves way too seriously. They cover stuff up. Yeah, you, you probably need to leave that church. That doesn't sound good for your family. So I'm not sure. saying you got to stay at one church for 40 years. I know some people that every 10 or 15 years, they change churches. And I get that. And I know other people that every year or so, they're at a different church. I'm not certain that that's healthy. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like, you know, we we approach church and are, are looking for a community with the mindset um, I need, I need to find a place where there, I will experience very little tension where it, there will be, you know, doctrinally relationally, there will be very little rub going on there. But instead, based on what you said, we need to be looking for a congregation in a community 
where asking the question instead, are these the kind of people that when there is conflict, Mm -hmm. we can work through it? Because that conflict is so inevitable. You know, when I took this position I'm in now, I thought, okay, you know, great group of people. I'm I'm just going to get up there. I'm going to study. I'm going to dig into the, the, the Greek and the Hebrew and just, you know, show them all these amazing nuggets of information about the text and and just blow their minds. You know, just gonna, you yeah. picture yourself doing that, you know, and being this like amazing teacher. And what's fascinating as I spend so much more of my emotional energy doing conflict resolution and counseling, which I don't really see myself great at than I do teaching, which I, I see myself. I love teaching. Um, but that's just the, the, for anyone looking to go in into ministry or shepherding or anything like that in a, in a, in a church, it's like, man, hum, humans are, we're, we're so deprived and in need of someone who will do the work and take the time to sit down and mm-hmm. allow people to heal and bind up wounds and, and counsel and, and give hard words sometimes when hard mm-hmm. words need to be said. Well, and you can't really get that from you just doing online church, Mm-mm. right? I mean, you know, not to knock online church, but I mean, you know, so many people have told me like, Hey, I've just been doing church in my living room. I, I find three or four church services. I love to pipe in on Sunday. So I actually get more church than anybody else. And I'm like, why is that really church you're getting? Or is that you getting on demand content, right? Mm. When, when you get in someone's life and they get in your life and like you're saying, Gabe, this like deep, often painful, you know, spiritual formation and being there and being with someone and loving them enough to have those tough hard, painful conversations. That's church, right? I mean, that's, that is when we're actually doing what it is Jesus has called us to do. Um, but yeah, well, JP, man, this has been awesome. Great conversation. Thank you so much for oh, I hopping on with us. And I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, man. Well, next time, uh, work on that beard game for a little bit for us. Uh, I, I mean, it's still it's there. I can see it's you've got potential. So uh, I, could, I just picture his thirteen-year-old daughter saying, "Dad, you need to shave." Yes, definitely. <laughs> that's gross. Yeah, um, your book, "Broken but Beautiful." I'm holding it up to the camera, but obviously, because we're listening to a podcast, you can't see it. But uh, JP, tell us where someone could find your book, Broken Beautiful. It's published by Wiffenstock Publishers. You can find it on their website, or obviously, you can find it on Amazon as well. Very cool. Awesome, awesome. Well, Gabe, any any last thoughts? Any last uh, concerns, cries of outrage? Anything? No, 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 no. Another great episode. Is this number 29? 29, yeah. Is Man. It? Wow. Yeah. It's awesome. So we are almost 30. It's crazy. Yeah. Thank you everybody for listening. Yeah, it's it's been a it's been a real real journey. So all right. Well you guys take care and thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.